Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition Diva Podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel. And if you are a longtime listener, then you probably know that many of the topics that I cover on the podcast are suggested by you, by listeners. And I've gotten a lot of great questions that don't require an entire episode to answer, but that I'd love to respond to. So this week I have five of them. And in most cases, if not all, there are related episodes in the archives if you'd like to go deeper. And you'll find links to those in our show notes, which as always are at quickanddirtytips.com. So let's start out with one that came in on the Nutrition Diva listener line, which, by the way, you can reach at 443-961-6206. Hi, I have a question about topical vitamin E. I'm aware that vitamin E supplements should be avoided with people who are taking blood thinners, but I was wondering if its topical use would be an alternative way to help skin. As I talked about in episode number 293, Vitamin E is one of the most common nutrient shortfalls. You don't actually need all that much of it, just 15 milligrams per day, but 9 out of 10 Americans still fall short on vitamin E. And this listener is absolutely correct that people who are taking blood thinners or who are preparing for surgery are often advised not to take vitamin E supplements. Vitamin E is a natural anticoagulant, and combining supplements with blood thinners can be too much of a good thing. Vitamin E from foods is not a concern in this situation, however, and there are some other advantages to getting vitamin E from foods rather than supplements. Most supplements only provide the alpha-tocopherol form of vitamin E, but foods provide a range of all the different tocopherols and tocotrienols that make up the vitamin E family. Nuts, seeds, avocado, and whole grains are going to be your primary sources of natural vitamin E. And you know I love a cheat sheet, and I've put together a vitamin E cheat sheet to show you which foods contain vitamin E, and you'll find a link to that in the show notes. But vitamin E is also a popular ingredient in skincare products, which leads to this listener's question, could you maybe absorb vitamin E through your skin? And the answer is no. As I explained in episode number 465, while nutrients in topical formulas may have cosmetic effects on the surface of your skin, very little, if any, of those nutrients are penetrating beyond the skin's surprisingly tough outer layers. That's why we can slather our skin with mineral-based sunscreens all summer long without developing a zinc overload. And here's another great question sent in by email this time from Ross. Does preparation and cooking method have a significant impact on the amount of sulforaphane in broccoli? And does this matter to our health? Now, Ross also helpfully linked to the online article that he'd seen that prompted his question. And just a side note to other question sender-inners, this is infinitely more helpful than telling me that you read something somewhere and asking me if it's true. If you send me your source, it's a lot easier for me to answer your question. The article that Ross forwarded described a small study conducted by Chinese researchers to compare the amount of sulforaphane in broccoli that was cooked through a few different methods. Now, remember the broccoli sprout craze? That was all about sulforaphane. This is a chemical in broccoli that's been found to have anti-cancer effects in test tube and animal studies. 
But the jury is still very much out on whether higher sulforaphane intake could reduce your risk of cancer beyond what simply eating more vegetables in general can do for you. The amount of sulforaphane in broccoli is greatly reduced when you cook it. However, these Chinese researchers found that mincing the broccoli and then letting it sit for 90 minutes before stir-frying it results in a much higher sulforaphane content than other cooking methods, almost as much as eating it raw. And here's why. When you chew raw broccoli, you release an enzyme that converts glucosinolates in the vegetable to that magic sulforaphane compound. Chopping the broccoli also releases this enzyme and it starts that conversion process. However, the enzyme is quickly destroyed by heat and at that point, conversion stops. So these researchers demonstrated that chopping it up and then letting it sit for 90 minutes maximizes that sulforaphane production before the cooking process neutralizes that enzyme. And the finer you chop it, the better, at least from a sulforaphane perspective. Now, personally, I can't see using pulverized broccoli in a stir fry, but extrapolating from this study, if you're making a pureed broccoli soup, for example, you could chop up that broccoli and let it sit for an hour or two before adding it to your soup, and perhaps you'd get a bit more sulforaphane in the bargain. However, the impact of this on your overall health and disease risk is unclear. This is really a great example of that phenomenon where something can be true, but still not be terribly meaningful. Look, if you really want to double down on the sulforaphane, including some raw broccoli florets in your salad or your crudite platter is probably your best bet. But look, in my opinion, the most nutritious way to prepare your vegetables is the way that you like them the best, because those are the ones you're actually going to eat. Maddie left this question on the Nutrition Diva listener line. Hey, this is Maddie. Um, I have heard recently a lot about sprouts and microgreens, and I listened to a really long podcast actually on sprouts and how one cup of sprouts has all of the amino acids that you need in your diet. So I was just wondering if this is true, how good are sprouts actually for your diet? Do you recommend them? I would just love to know. Sprouted seeds, also known as microgreens, can be a very nutritious option, and they're fun to grow at home, especially in the winter when your outdoor garden may be offline. Sprouted alfalfa, clover, radish, or broccoli seeds are great on salads or in place of lettuce on sandwiches or wraps. Like most greens, they are rich in vitamins C, A, and K, and a host of other nutrients. And as mentioned above, broccoli sprouts also contain that cancer-fighting chemical sulforaphane. And it's also true that when seeds are sprouted, it increases their protein and their essential amino acid content. However, they are still quite low in protein. A half cup serving of alfalfa sprouts, for example, contains just half a gram of protein. So even if sprouts do contain all of the essential amino acids, they're not going to provide enough of them to meet your needs. Now you can also sprout beans and other legumes. Their heartier texture makes them good in soups, stir fries, and omelets. Because these seeds are higher in protein to start out with, the resulting sprouts will also be higher in protein, along with fiber, folic acid, and other B vitamins. A half cup serving of sprouted kidney beans, for example, contains four grams of protein, eight times as much as the alfalfa sprouts. 
And finally, grains can be sprouted as well, which also increases their nutrient content somewhat and may also make them more digestible. However, the nutritional differences between regular grains and sprouted grains aren't really big enough to have much of an impact on the overall nutritional quality of your diet. In other words, go ahead and eat those sprouted grain products if you enjoy them or you like the idea of them. Just don't eat more of them simply because they're sprouted. Sprouted grains are still considered grains, not vegetables. Here's a question from Brittany. I recently found out about quinoa, she says, and everything that I find online is saying that you have to wash it before you cook it. But on the NCBI website, there's a study that says otherwise, so maybe you can give a little bit of a clarification. Okay, so the NCBI is the National Center for Biotechnology Information, and it is a branch of the National Institutes of Health. So first off, kudos to Brittany for turning to reputable sources to answer her nutrition questions. As I talked about in episode number 393, the grain quinoa contains bitter compounds called saponins. They got that name because they lather up in water, like soap suds. Like many other phytocompounds, saponins are produced by plants as a method of natural pest control. That bitter taste makes the plant less palatable to birds, insects, and, it turns out, humans. But these chemicals often also have health benefits. In fact, many of the phytocompounds thought to be beneficial to human health fall into this category of natural pesticides. Although ingesting large amounts of saponins might cause you some stomach irritation or other unpleasant effects, small amounts are generally harmless to humans. In fact, saponins are found in a variety of herbs, vegetables, and legumes, in addition to quinoa. In the quinoa plant, the saponins are most concentrated in the leaves, which we generally don't eat, as well as on the surface of the grains. You can remove the saponins by washing the grains before you cook them until they stop sudsing. But a lot of brands are pre-washed to save you this step. In addition, much of the quinoa for sale today has been bred to be lower in saponins to begin with because it gives that grain a sweeter, mellower taste and it saves you the trouble of pre-washing it. So if you have a very sensitive stomach or other gut issues, you may want to give your quinoa a vigorous rinse before you cook it. Otherwise, just check the package label, and if it doesn't instruct you to rinse it before cooking, you should be able to safely skip that step. And finally, this thoughtful question from Abigail, or rather... Abigail's husband. This one came in by email. I was at the grocery store last week, she wrote, and organic milk cost the same as non-organic. So I got it, thinking we do consume a lot of milk, maybe we should switch. But then my husband asked me, what is better about organic milk? And I had no idea. Can you help me answer him? I think most of us have the general impression that organic products are in some way superior to non-organic. But what exactly is the difference? Organic products are not necessarily more nutritious than their conventional counterparts. Organic milk provides the same amount of protein, same amount of calcium as non-organic milk. There are some small differences in the fat content, not in the total amount of fat, but just in the types of fat. Organic milk is, on average, higher in omega-3 and other healthy fats. But because milk is not a big source of omega-3 to begin with, 
these small differences aren't going to have much impact on the overall nutritional quality of your diet. Most of the difference between organic and conventional dairy has to do with how the cows are raised. Organic cows are given only organic feed and grazed only on pastures that are not treated with pesticides, for example. Routine use of antibiotics is also banned in organic dairy cows. Choosing organic dairy, therefore, is going to contribute to a reduction in agricultural use of pesticides and antibiotics on farms, and that can definitely have some beneficial downstream effects. But what about pesticide and antibiotic residues in the milk itself? Well, unfortunately, both conventional and organic milk contain residues from older pesticides that have since been banned, but they persist in the environment. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that, given the nature of these quote-unquote forever chemicals. The most recent field tests conducted by the FDA found that residues from pesticides that are currently in use were detectable in less than 10% of the milk samples that they tested, and none of those were at levels thought to pose a risk. Similarly, all milk for sale in the U.S. is tested for antibiotic residues, and if antibiotics are detected above a very low threshold, that milk cannot be sold and must be dumped. However, a recent analysis, which was funded by the Organic Center, found that none of the organic milk tested contained detectable residues of antibiotics or any of the pesticides currently in use. So choosing organic can potentially reduce your exposure to these compounds from very low to none at all. Now, the golden rule of toxicology, and you've heard me say this before, is that the dose makes the poison. Something that is harmful at a certain level of exposure can be completely harmless at a lower level. And there's no data to show that drinking organic milk translates into lower health risks for milk drinkers. Nonetheless, I can understand the emotional appeal of reducing one's exposure to zero if possible. And if the price of organic is the same as conventional, well, then it would seem to be a no-brainer. However, there are still a few reasons why you might decide to choose conventional anyway. You might prioritize buying milk from a local dairy, for example, even if it's not an organic producer. And a lot of the organic milk for sale these days is also ultra-pasteurized to extend its shelf life. Although this does not affect the nutritional quality of the milk, a lot of people do notice a difference in the taste. And if the only conventionally pasteurized option is non-organic, that might also tip the balance. But with a better understanding of what differentiates conventional from organic milk, I hope you can now make a more informed decision about what to buy and why. Thanks to all of you who sent questions in for today's episode. If you have a question that you'd like me to answer, you can email it to me at nutrition at quickanddirtytips.com or you can call the Nutrition Diva listener line at 443-961-6206 and leave me a message. It's always fun to hear your voice. The Nutrition Diva Show is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Nathan Sems with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our assistant manager is Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. And our intern is Jake Johnson. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.